Hey folks, Jared here, little midweek sea control action for you. We have Dr. Selmer Cagliano here revisiting a topic that we first discussed six months ago, COVID-19's impact on the maritime industry. So you can check out Sea Control 158 if you want to hear our first podcast on this subject. We've also announced the next phase of Project Trident. This is your opportunity to shape the future of maritime security. Our next theme is regional strategies, and we partnered with the Okuska Council for Asia-Pacific Studies. Dominican Naval Command and Staff College, and the Institute for Sicherheitspolitik in Kiel, Germany. Submissions are due August 31st. You can find more information on our website at simsec.org. Finally, uh, this is airing Thursday, if you're listening to it, which means that just yesterday we released another episode of The Bilge Pumps, Episode 10, Small Navies. You'll listen to uh, Dr. Alex Clark and friends discuss their ideal Elbonian fleet. So you can find those guys on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever else you download your podcasts. It's a more low-key, slightly less serious approach to current events in the maritime domain and naval history by three historians. Check them out wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, I'll turn it over to Kimber's men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security. Aloha, Schmitz, and welcome back aboard Sea Control. Today, we're updating a podcast we did back in February with Dr. Sal Mercagliano on COVID-19's impact on the international maritime industry. If you want to find it, it's linked in the show notes, so you can browse for Sea Control 158 on whichever app you use to listen to podcasts. Sal, welcome back, and thanks for coming on. Could you refresh our viewers on your bio, please? Well, first of all, it's great to be back. A lot has happened in the six months we've been gone <laughs> since we last talked. I am a uh, former merchant mariner. I graduated from uh, SUNY Maritime College. Sailed with the Military Sealift Command for three years, worked ashore for them for four years, and then embarked on an academic career. Got a master's in maritime history and nautical archaeology from East Carolina, and a PhD in military and naval history from the University of Alabama. Thanks, Sal. As you mentioned, that a lot has happened since the last time we spoke, and our February conversation was a lot of conjecture as uh, we went through the press clippings and tried to figure out what was going on, what was going to happen. We've now had almost six months of information to process and evaluate, so we'll run through the major sectors and you can fill us in on the issues facing each of them. But how about starting with container shipping? Sure. When we were looking at this in February, there was a lot of angst and anxiety out there, and we were kind of you know, using the tea leaves, so to speak, to talk about this. And one of the things that we saw was a really downgrade in the amount of shipping coming out of China. And we thought because of the outbreak of the disease in China, that was going to have a domino effect, and it did. We, we, we saw that progress in that period between February and today. We saw a real marked reduction in the amount of containers coming into the United States and also into Europe. But what we're seeing right now is, is something really interesting is, is China is, is back up to its levels of export. We're seeing them moving containers once again. But one of the interesting things is imports are down in a lot of countries. So we're not seeing Europe and the United States buying a lot. And what that means for the container market is there's a lot of still blank sailings out there. The shipping lines are not sailing as much as they were, which is usually fairly good. That means rates go down. And if you look at almost all the world shipping rates right now, freight rates are down except for one area, and that is from uh, East Asia to the United States, the West Coast and the East Coast, has seen a spike, a huge raise in rates. It's almost over $3,000 a box right now. That's almost a $500 increase that we're seeing. And that has largely have to do with the, uh, the factors of containerization, the fact that the eight largest container firms are in these three massive alliances. They control almost 80% of the world's container freight. And what they're doing is basically conferencing together and setting rates. They know the United States will pay these rates, and therefore they're kind of using a, almost a monopolistic strategy to, to jack rates up 
on the United States. None of those companies are United States. None of them are American. Uh, they're all overseas. And unfortunately, the Federal Maritime Commission really hasn't come down yet on this price fixing that's going on. So when we last discussed tanker shipping, oil, LNG, we were talking about most of the available tanker space was being used as floating storage. Is that still the case or has that market recovered from that? We see a lot of that still going on right now. Matter of fact, it's an interesting case right now. We're seeing the use of that quite a bit. You're still seeing a lot of the larger ships out there, the, the VLCCs, the ULCCs being used at. We had a peak way back in, in May. May is when we really saw it at, at, its, at its top level, where we saw almost, I think it was about 200 million tons of vessels out there being used. It was, uh, excuse me, 200 million barrels of, of oil being kind of stored out there. Uh, it's come down a little. A lot of the smaller, the medium size and long-range tankers are being cut loose. We're still seeing some of the VLCCs and ULCCs out there. But one of the interesting things that we didn't know back in February that happened during this period was we expected oil to kind of pool up like it did because of downturn in, in, in use. We knew people weren't driving as much and there was going to be excess. But what we did not expect was OPEC and Russia to dump oil on the market at extremely low levels. And what they did was depress the rates. I mean, I, I saw a dollar per gallon gas. And what Russia and OPEC were aiming to do, and they succeeded pretty well, was drive out some American shale oil companies. And we saw that happen. Uh, Chesapeake Oil, which was one of these large shale oil companies, uh, filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And one of the things was an opportunity was to flood the market with that oil, get prices down to a level. The shale market had pushed a lot of the offshore oil industry out of business already. And now what they were trying to do, Russian OPEC, was drive American oil companies out. And it's going to be interesting to see how that falls out because there's a struggle right now for shale companies to stay liquid, so to speak, and, and maintain themselves at this time. So the next category was bulk shipping. First, how would you define bulk shipping and then what's going on in that sector? So bulk shipping, you're talking about really two major commodities. One is agricultural, soybeans and grains and that much. And then the other is ore. On each of those commodities, we, we've seen very interesting things happen. So if right now, for example, China, which had shut down for such a long period of time, when we talked in February, China's ports were really shutting down. We saw a really drop in, in, in both imports and exports. They're open up again, but matter of fact, there's a backlog. And matter of fact, we're, we're seeing one of the biggest backlogs right now in shipping because of this, because of the nature of global shipping, the fact that all the pieces have to continually be moving. It's not designed to pulse. It's designed to flow. When you create that backlog, and it's, it's very hard to catch up. And so one of the things we're seeing right now in the, in, in the bulk sector is China is trying to get as much bulk as they can. They've got, there's a lot of issues going on internally in China beyond the, the, uh, the virus. They've got uh, massive issues uh, with the Three Gorges Dam and, and water and, and really a low production of, of grain and food right now. So they're, they're importing large amounts of food. They're also importing large amounts of bulk. But one of the issues that has come out of COVID is Australia, which is one of the largest bulk providers to China in, in ore particularly, had imposed very strict restrictions on vessels coming out of China into Australia. Well, China has reciprocated by cutting down massively the amount of bulk they're getting from Australia. And they're shifting that overseas. They're going to other places. They're going to uh, Brazil. They're going to Africa. And so this is a very interesting kind of uh, diplomatic fight going on here between China and Australia in the bulk market we're seeing. So you mentioned the backlog, and as I'm interpreting what you're saying there, I understand backlog is going into China and not coming out of China. Any place else where uh, things are kind of stacked up? 
No, China's really really seen that, and and it, it has of course it has a, a kind of that domino effect that we talked about. So right now, there was an estimate that came out that about seven percent of the global fleet is stuck in ports, and that number is 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 twice what it normally is. And usually, you're seeing ships move all the time, but if you can't offload those bulkers, the new ones are not going to load up to come out yet. And so this creates a, a kind of a chain effect. Once you slow one end, you're slowing the uh, the, the upload level. And China just cannot get. Uh, they have to get that congestion out. They got. They got to get the the vessels offloading. They got to get commodities moving. But what's happening internally in China? Again, they're saying this is because of issues with the rivers, Three Gorges Dam. They're saying this is an issue with uh, uh, weather environment. But it may also be COVID nineteen related. I, I think the internal infrastructure of China took a very heavy hit because of COVID nineteen. I don't have evidence to back that up. It's just a suspicion. But it, the pieces do do tend to fit that China can't get the commodities out of their major ports as fast into the internal areas of China that they once could. I was going to ask, how do you go about clearing a backlog like that? Because port operations are effectively 24-7 at this point, if I'm not mistaken. So if things are backed up, you'll never clear it if you don't have the internal infrastructure to clear it. That's right. And what they would have to do is divert more resources, maybe larger ships, maybe use some other ports, to develop to to really get that out. And the other thing, too, that you, that you see going on, this is another internal fight that's going on right now, is China is looking at trying to shut out Hong Kong and Busan as, as major rival ports in East Asia. So they're trying to get more and more trade into their ports. And they're trying to make major hubs come to them as opposed to going to them. Busan, obviously, because of Korea, they, they you know anything the Chinese can do to hurt Korea is, is, is great for them. And Hong Kong, because of the political instability that we've seen erupt since the outbreak of COVID-19, really trying to limit the power of Hong Kong. I was going to say, do the Chinese not derive any benefit from the trade going into Hong Kong? They do, but the autonomous state of Hong Kong and the way it exists, there, there, there are some commercial companies there that are still outside the bounds of the Chinese Industry and what they want to do is really minimize the role of Hong Kong. They want to, you know, I, I think, and I think many people would argue that they're trying to break Hong Kong and, and try to fully kind of incorporate it into China. And the way to do that is by minimize its economic impact. And I think that's that's one of the roles they're doing. There's a lot of debate about China opening up cabotage, allowing more coastal trade in it because they they just really want to bleed that because Hong Kong technically is a, as a separate flag, Busan and Korea is a separate flag. They, they have these uh, elements that, that allow them to basically serve as international hubs. And again, this is all part of China's really overall strategy to make sure that their imports, exports are, are secure. Because again, they need to feed a huge massive population. At the same time, they need to keep goods moving out to generate revenue and flow of money. Thanks. So I think the most reported on sector of the maritime industry remains the cruise shipping. I can't go a day without reading about cruise ships being run aground so they can be broken up. Uh, I've also noted at least one line has restarted service in Europe only to have an immediate coronavirus outbreak on board. So early on we had discussed difficulties in getting passengers off of cruise ships because countries were unwilling to let the ship stock. I don't believe we're seeing the passengers stranded anymore, but we still have crews stuck on those ships. What else is going on with the cruise industry? We do. And, and I remember our conversation we had on that. And, and that was kind of one of the leading indicators we saw was really what was happening on the cruise ship. So, yeah, we, all the passengers had finally gotten off. Some passengers were on there for a long period of time, but some ships were on a very long extended worldwide cruises. So that was one of the, the last legs we saw. 
You're right. We're seeing ships run aground right now in Turkey, uh, scrapping going on. Four ships recently, the, the, the Monarch and Sovereign of the Seas, the two of the very first we call mega cruise ships. They were initially with Carnival, excuse me, uh, with Royal Caribbean. Uh, then they went to one of their subsidiaries, a, a Spanish line that has basically uh, gone bankrupt now. And then two of the Carnival, Carnival Fantasy ships, the Fantasy and the Inspiration were run aground. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. We're going to see the the cruise lines bleed their older tonnage a lot faster. And there's a reason for that. They need, number one, cash. They're desperately short of cash. They have not run cruises basically since March. And uh, the cruise lines made a woefully bad decision in keeping the crews on the vessels, keeping the vessels warm, ready to go, basically. They never shut them down. They didn't go to a cold layup. Uh, and one of the reasons they did that is because it would take too long to get the crews back on board. They wanted to be ready to go to jump back in the passenger trade. And what we saw happen was the passenger trade has not only not happened, but we're going to see it pushed out. You mentioned the German line. The Hurtigan went up into Norway, and they had a whole rash of COVID-19 uh, patients on board. Uh, until you can screen every passenger on board, every crew member on board, and then make sure they don't go ashore anywhere, which really isn't the whole – which really defeats the genesis of cruising – it's going to be very difficult to do this. The other implication you have here is these cruise lines were expecting to, you know, go from, you know, if you look at the, the the five big cruise lines out there, they were looking to add 100 ships over the next seven years. And now all of a sudden, those ships are in, in progress. They're building some of those. They're building the parts for them. They're, you know, it's, it's it's very much a prefabrication in these yards. And many of these yards have shut down because of COVID, because of uh, issues with yard workers. The cruise lines have, have basically started leveraging their vessels, getting huge loans on, on their vessels. And now you're seeing them run them aground in Turkey because they're scrapping them, because the steel in them is worth more than anything else right now. And so the cruise lines are struggling. You're not going to see the demise of Carnival, Royal Caribbean, Norwegian. They're not going to go away. But what you see go away is the smaller cruise lines are going to bear the brunt of this. And what we may see is a reorientation in the cruise industry from these massive 5,000, 6,000 passenger vessels, maybe down to more medium-sized vessels that can be maybe plussed up in, in, in future years, but more accommodating for passengers on board with less crew. Is the river cruise industry affected in the same way as for the, uh, I don't know what you would call it, the, the seagoing cruise industry? They were undergoing different rules. So, for example, in the United States, the river cruises in the United States, the River Delta, the American Cruise Lines, they were not under the CDC guidelines. So they, they attempted to keep operating. problem you had is a lot of ports wouldn't let them in. So you had uh, you know places like Bar Harbor, Maine, which is a big cruise port right there, wouldn't let cruise lines in. Others followed suit. Uh, same thing in Europe. Uh, you were fine domestically within a certain country, but not going outside that country. And the river cruises tried to keep going, but but right now it's it's almost hit and miss who's running. Some smaller, very small targeted cruise lines are out there running for key areas, the Galapagos Islands and Antarctic runs. But but the larger cruise ships have done it. And the bigger issue they also had to is they had to get their crews off. So you literally, you know, if you if, if you look at a, an app like Cruise Mapper, you'll see huge anchorages of, of cruise ships in the Bahamas. Uh, there was one in Manila, but they, they moved because of typhoons. So they're off uh, Singapore right now. And so you'll see them just basically sitting out there. It's amazing to see these anchorages full. It almost looks like Ulithi in World War II with the U.S. Navy ships, except they're all, you know, cruise, cruise liners. Yeah, we've still got quite a number of cruise ships anchored off of uh, San Diego here. It's interesting to see ships that size just hanging out, nowhere to go. 
what does a company typically get when they break up one of these ships? You said the steel is worth more than the vessel itself. Well, a lot of, a lot of the new cruise liners that are being built are modular anyway. So so they are definitely designed to kind of the rooms are modular. They're almost in, in almost like Lego blocks. They go in. And so, you know, a lot of things you can salvage and reuse. So, I mean, I mean that, one of the things that we've seen is ships, especially since the year 2000, have been designed really to be scrapped. They're designed to run for 15 years and then be recycled. And uh, that's a key element. Now, a lot of ships we're seeing right now are from the late 80s, early 90s. So these are a little older vessels. These really did not have a lot of those features. So they're being stripped of all their all their bedding, all their you know rooms and everything. And that's going to be reused. That, that'll be used in new cruise ships that are coming out. So instead of having to buy stuff, they're going to just basically repurpose a lot of the a lot of the material that's in them and put them on new cruise ships coming out. The steel is worth its weight in gold right now because of steel. I mean, that's just it's one of those things. People are not wanting to buy a lot of Chinese steel for a variety of reasons. 80s, 90s steel is pretty good that they have right there. The engines, the machinery, a lot of it's going to be wound up recycled. And if you, and if you go and look at, at beach there in Turkey where they run aground, they some great videos watching them run them up. They literally drive them right up on the beach. And then they just start scrapping them right there. And most of them had already been stripped of their internals. And so the companies are going to recycle as much as they can, but they're basically selling those vessels as scrap for money. They just need currency right now because they're just bleeding money out of their reserves. Many of the cruise lines didn't have a lot of debt on them, which was a nice thing. They were running in the profit for a long time. They can afford to incur some debt. Their problem is they just don't know when they're going to be able to start cruising. And more importantly, it's not clear when they'll be able to have the ships up and ready to run. They're keeping some crew members on there, but there are issues about getting them off, getting them back home, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. Yeah, I've watched some of those videos. That is, a, as a mariner, it's like a recurring stress nightmare watching a ship run aground just over and over again. I watched one or two, and then I had to turn them off. Uh, this wasn't on our list to discuss before. I'm going to ask anyway, though. We talked about it last time. What's been the impact on the fishing industry? Have we seen any impact there? Well, fishing industry has been, again, uh, we, we've seen a lot of interesting elements happening out in the fishing industry. So one of the things that we've seen is, is number one, fi fishing boats have been out there just still doing what they do. Uh, the issue has really been on the processing boats where the fishing boats basically feed into. Uh, they have been out there for long periods of time because of the issue with crews. Uh, they uh, normally would, would go into local ports, offload their fish, and be able to fly at home a lot of it or, or transship it into larger vessels. What's happening is a lot of these feeder vessels, these motherships almost like, are now having to sail back to home countries, which means it's slowing the, the, the process of getting fish to places like China and a few other areas. And one of the things that, that we're also seeing, too, is, is China is taking this opportunity to really push their first, uh, fishing fleets out into further and further reaches. There was a story the other day about a, a fleet of almost 600 fishing vessels that were on the edge of the Galapagos Islands, the Ecuadorian Economic Exclusion Zone. And we're seeing China do this a lot more, where they're basically pushing the boundaries of fishing. They're not going into the Ecuadorian EZ, but they're going to fish along the periphery of it. And that maybe is almost as dangerous as almost like slant slant drilling it, you know, under a border to get oil. And we're seeing China really picking on nations where they, they have no means to defend themselves. So the fishing industry is still absolutely essential. But, you know, the, the problem has been is countries that are able to respond to this. China has been able to respond to it by putting more ships, more vessels involved in this. Other countries are not been able to do it as much. 
And so what we're seeing is escalating price in, in fish going out there, which is, again is a staple diet for a lot, especially East Asian and Southern Asian countries. So we discussed the need for a number of Chinese shipyards to declare force majeure back in February. What's been the impact on shipyards? Well, one of the things, uh, there, there was a great report that came out by the uh, Danish Ship Finance uh, um, back in May, I think it was. And they were talking about the exposure about COVID, but more importantly, the changing nature of the shipyards. And one of the things they talked about is the fact that they, they foresee about 200 yards worldwide closing. And one of the things we're seeing is this consolidations of yards. So a lot of shipyards had to exercise some force majeure about contracts. That, that was going to happen. And to tell you the truth, I think shipyards and some of the shipping firms were glad about that. So if you're the cruise industry, you really don't want that new cruise liner coming off the way yet. You really, you know, you're quite happy when the yard tells you, hey, had to put us in our workers' home. Your ship's not going to be ready for three, four months. That works out great. If you're in the LNG trade, if you're a bulk trader, you want your ship now because the market is such that you want to get out there and get into the marketplace. Uh, one of the unintended things we talked about too was a lot of these shipyards were needed be, to install scrubbers uh, to uh, because of the meet the IMO 2020 issues. Well, because of the slowdown in shipping, there was more low di- uh, low sulfur diesel out there than expected. So a lot of ships didn't need to install those scrub- scrubbers. They expected to be using the high sulfur diesel, but they were able to get the low sulfur. And so a lot of the shipyards were able to hold it off. Now, as things resume and, and pressure begins, we're seeing that backlog happen again. And the shipyards are getting pushed. At the same time, China, Japan, and Korea are in a nasty fight to control shipping. Again, you know, I've, we've talked about this before, and I'll always say this again, about 94 of the world's of the world's shipping is in four countries, China, Japan, Korea, and the Philippines. China's 40.1%, followed by Korea and Japan. They are fighting each other to control world shipbuilding. And what what we're seeing happen in those countries is consolidation of those yards. All the yards are consolidating. They're larger, bigger yards. And that also means they can handle slowdowns a little bit better. Bigger bigger yards are, are more capable. Uh, so we saw some force majeure contracts issued. We've seen a lot of them in, in liner trades, a lot of blank sailings that took place. And what happened is a lot of times they just shifted those contracts further down the road. You know, instead of sailing a ship in March, we'll sail it in April. And so we see that being moved. But again, the question is how much it recovers back, which is the real big next issue that will be facing the shipping industry. Thanks. So we've talked about industries. We've talked about individual types of vessels, containers, et cetera. Uh, let's talk about the human element here because I've seen a lot of articles right now on the impact that this has had on crews, uh, regardless of their industry. What's a normal cycle for being underway? How has that changed as part of uh, what's going on? Well, if you, if you look at um, foreign flight, non-U.S. ships, so a, a lot of, of ships under agreements made, uh, made with the International Maritime Labor Organization basically set – basically contracts for working on ships from six to nine months. And the cap was supposed to be at the max 12 months. That was the, that was the most you're signing on a ship for. Well, because of COVID-19, you can't get the crews off. You can't get the crews off. You can't fly them home because normal air travel isn't what it used to be. Uh, IMO and a few other entities and organizations have been trying to get mariners as declared essential employees. 
so that they can basically move through nations, use their international airports and, and, and travel. They have not yet been able to do that, believe it or not. And so what has happened is you, you've had ships that, you know, mariners have been out now for over 12 months at a time. Uh, that has caused, obviously, ramifications at home. People have not been able to get home. But more importantly, the reliefs have not been able to get out to the ships, which doesn't sound bad. Well, you're on the beach. You're at home. That doesn't sound bad. Well, they're not getting paid. They don't get paid until they're on the boat. And so if you can't get on the boat, you're not going to sit there waiting since February to get out to a ship. You're going to go find another job to go do something. And so what that means is even when you can start moving crews, are there going to be crews available to move them? And we've seen some very unique things happen. Uh, there was an Indian uh, captain on a vessel who was on on, on route uh, a bulk ship from from South America to China, and he rerouted to India to change out his crew. He sailed directly to India to reroute his crew. Now he was fired as soon as he hit hit the ground, <laughs> but he he decided to take the the, the initiative and get his crew uh, off the boat. Uh, the cruise lines had to basically up anchor and and do a massive cruise swap. You know, they took all the Malaysians on board one ship. They took the Filipinos on another ship. They took the Indians on another ship, and they set sail for those countries because they weren't going to wait for airlines. They basically used the cruise ships to to, to redeploy them. And again, th this is having ramifications in international shipping. It's also having ramifications for U.S. shipping. Uh, U.S. crews are having difficulties getting out to vessels and, and moving on uh, because of quarantines, because of having to be in bubbles to get yourself, make sure you're COVID-19 free because there's not enough testing. Uh, you're, you're, it's very difficult to do this and, and move vessels out. And I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be surprised to see efforts after this to get mariners declared as essential. The problem is right now it's not being done. And and once again, and, and you know me, this is a soapbox for me. Mariners are not getting the Basically, I don't want to say respect, but, but they're not getting the, the, the due owed to them and, and the role they're playing right now. They are essential. And instead, what's happening is the crews are starting to break down. There, there, there's instances on board of some vessels of, of crews basically not doing wanting to do work. And we're going to see more and more mistakes out there, which is a big problem. Thanks. You talk about the need to declare crews essential. That's something that would have to be done on a national basis, right? Each individual country would have to go through. You wouldn't be able to do that internationally correct imo the international maritime organization is trying to do that under the guise of of some some unclause and a few other international maritime labor agreements that they would like to roll that into there was very innovative efforts out there to try to get this maybe set up some hubs in places like singapore djibouti and, and singapore uh, gibraltar and a few other places and do it and and it's they've been moving crews they're getting the move but it's been very difficult i, I mean because again even if you can get into Singapore and, and, and even get the guys to the air, the airport, then you got to go through, you know, no one's got a direct flight to wherever you need to go. You got to go through some hub or something like that. And you face the prospect of them having to be quarantined or held in, in those places. And so a lot of mariners are lost in transit, so to speak. So what does this meant for U.S. consumers and U.S. flag shipping? The, uh, on, on the U.S. side, obviously – one of the things we've seen is uh, is again that slowdown. You know, when we when we saw the the shortages, a lot of it was was self imposed by us. When everyone ran out and bought every last roll of toilet paper, that was kind of self imposed on us. Yeah, I'm still but looking one of the things for we... my uh, toilet paper shortage 2020 survivor shirt. So I'm <laughs> keeping my ear to the ground to find that one. But yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, you're you're fine. Uh, you know, and, and, but that that also goes to the issue here of of how our supply system works. I mentioned to you before the, the concept of, a, of a, a flowing supply system versus a pulse supply system. 
you know, when, when as long as everything's flowing, you know, everything works great. You don't have to keep a lot of stuff on the shelves. Everything's moving. It, it, and it's great for businesses. You don't have to pay for warehousing. You don't have to pay for storage. You basically just keep everything moving. Hey, I don't need this till Tuesday. I can order it and it'll arrive on Monday. And therefore, it gives me a little, one day extra. But now all of a sudden you have to change that. And what you see is a lot of U.S. companies, for example, realizing, well, we may need to stock up more. I may need that closet full of toilet paper, for example, just in case. Maybe some more dry goods. Well, what we're doing in the houses, companies are doing in their business sectors. And what that's doing is putting a big pull onto the supply system that wasn't there previously. And so we're seeing the supply system have to adjust to that. And we're trying to get it solved by domestic. Domestic is great because that's shorter supply line. We, we don't have to worry about international disruptions. Problem is that means higher cost. We're using the international system, but when you prioritize something, that means higher cost too. You know, one of the things that one of the reasons why shipping has been very phenomenal and very good is they've been able to shift over to slow steaming, slow vessels down a few knots, saves a huge amount of money. And more importantly, if you can slide them into a port when you don't have to pay, you know, a third shift to come in to offload a vessel, I can just do it with one or two shifts. That's more affordable for me to to do that. And so this this is the ramifications we're having. What we're doing right now is is, is paying for things at the last minute. You know, it's 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 that you know buying your flight the night before you fly. You're either going to find a huge a huge sale or you're going to find a price that's through the roof. And that's what we're basically seeing right now with shipping. And until this slows down, until the market reestablishes itself, the problem is there are so many other factors being thrown in here. Russians and, and OPEC, for example, in the oil market is just one of those. It, it's really hard to get a gauge of where this has impacts. I think one of the things that in the United States we're seeing is that really the need to, number one, have, have a good, adequate domestic industrial capacity. We obviously can't make everything in the United States, but it's good to have a reservoir, a backup of that. And it's also good to have maybe a, a, an idea of a role in U.S. shipping, as we're seeing right now with container spikes coming to the United States from the Far East, something we cannot control because none of those ships are American flagged, American crewed, or uh, American operated. How about U.S. military shipping? The U.S. military is, is again, is another issue uh, that we're seeing. We, of course, have seen with the U.S. Navy extremely long deployment. So, I mean, vessels out there for an extreme amount of time, not coming back in. You know, we, we, we saw uh, Nimitz battle group out there for over, I remember seeing the image of over 169 days. Uh, they just pull back into Norfolk, for example. So, you know, we, we have that issue of crews being out there for a long time. The civilian crews on board military sea lift command vessels are another unique thing. You know, they're supposed to be on four-month tours. Very hard to do reliefs right now. You know, you're supposed to be on a four-month tour. I, I know mariners out there that are in their ninth month on that already. And again, very similar situation with mariners in military sea lift command is, you know, once you burn through your leave, that's it. You're on your own. You're not getting paid anymore. And if they can't get you out to the vessel, you, you may not just lose your money, but you may lose that mariner and their replacement pool. And if you're an engineer, I'm going to go work for a power company ashore. Or, you know, why, why do I need to be on a ship running a diesel when I could do that five miles from my house and be home every weekend and every night with the kids? And so we're seeing a, a big impact on the maritime sector, and it's both military and commercial in the United States. Thanks. So what has COVID shown us about global and domestic vulnerabilities in supply chains? Well, again, I, I go back to that issue. You know, one of the things we've seen, and we saw this on a small scale, we would see this periodically with, you know, maybe a hurricane or, or, or an event that would shut 
down part of our logistics system. So, you know, hurricane rolls into the, the Gulf of Mexico and they shut down the colonial pipeline. And for a few days, gas prices spike and everybody panics. Or we've seen a container uh, liner like Hanjin in 2016 go bankrupt and a disruption in trans-Pacific trade just briefly. And then it's, it's consumed up by the larger firms. What we hadn't seen really in, since World War II is a disruption on a global scale of, of the maritime sector. And, you know, in World War II, it's U-boats and Japanese, you know, kamikazes. In 2020, it's, it's COVID-19. And we're seeing this natural disaster befall the maritime industry. And, and one of the things we see is impacts on vessels. Once you get COVID on a ship, it runs rampant. It, it's one of the things. It's, almost, it's, it's impossibly the social distance on a vessel. You've been with each other for every day, eating every day. You have that impact. But more importantly... It shows the vulnerability of, of our global logistics system. We benefit in the fact that our trade is, is higher than ever before. I was used the statistic that in 1950, we shift half a billion tons of cargo around the world on the, on the oceans. You know, the last number I saw for 2018 was over 11 and a half billion. We've increased 22 fold the amount of goods we move on the world's oceans. And what that means is we're a society that resides on global commerce. The ships have got to keep moving. They've got to keep flowing. And when there's a disruption because of COVID, whether you're shutting down a port or even if you're just slowing it down, you're putting that speed bump in, you know, you get that, you get that highway function is like, you know, why is everybody slowed down here? But next minute, you know, you're going full speed again. That's what you see right now in global shipping. And there is a lot of people who made a lot of money over this event. If you were spot uh, spot chartering, or, or if you were buying shares in 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 tankers at the beginning of this, and you know you made a lot of money all of a sudden because global tankers were in short supply and you had to store oil, so a lot of companies made money about that. The container liners are making a lot of money right now because they're buying up smaller firms. They're they're going to do well. The, the passenger liners, not right now. They're not doing very well right now. And so one of the things I think this should show us is how important it is to realize how much our economy is dependent on other economies. And the conduit for that is global shipping. And whether it's COVID-19 interrupting it or it, it, it's a, you know, a, third, uh, you know, a third nation actor out there or a third party actor out there or uh, a peer-to-peer know, -a, a -peer -peer conflict – you know, these conflicts would become even more, you know, should that third world war erupt? Should there be piracy on a level we hadn't seen? If there's a global hacker out there who knocks out satellite communication and, and, and AIS, these are the impacts we should be watching out for. And, and while we can't survive in a bubble, we cannot be 100% dependent on ourselves. We need to make sure there's redundancy in our supply effort, which really is, is not out there right now. There's very few backups should something go wrong. We're unfortunately out of time for today. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Sal Mercagliano, for coming on. Sal, where can we find you online and what are you working on next? Sure. I uh, just finished up a piece talking about the uh, the impact of, matter of fact, COVID-19 with uh, Military Seal of Command. Hope to see that article published real soon and out there. I'm working on uh, another piece for Naval History on uh, the first convoy that went over to uh, France in, in World War I, that sea lift effort, how that was the really the role model that's set up for that. It's part of a larger project. I'm working on a book on military sea lift in, in World War I, and, and that's really been my focus. And I'm doing a YouTube series on the American Merchant Marine uh, right now on my YouTube channel. So I, I kind of emulate after you 
uh, Jared, and, and 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 you know, be being my role model that you are, you, you set it up for me. So I I uh, can never uh, get to the level you're at, but but I, I'd give it my my very vague try to get there. I think you're overselling me slightly. Uh, wasn't one of your YouTube videos over two hundred thousand views? We did. Uh, that was actually with uh, the North American Society of Oceanic History, four historians reviewing Greyhound, and uh, we actually hit over a quarter of a million views on that so far, which is which is uh, amazing. It's just absolutely again. It's four historians: uh, myself, Chuck Steele from the Air Force Academy, Dave Conan from Naval War College, uh, Naval War College, and Joe Moretz, a uh, independent uh, researcher. We did it, and and uh, I, I will tell you, uh, we, we've gotten a lot of great feedback about it. My my favorite negative feedback was one commenter sat there and said losers. So I, I thought that was my uh, favorite one. I think I went to high school with that guy. Yeah, you historians can just never let us folks have anything and enjoy it. But uh, I appreciate you coming on, Sal, and I uh, look forward to seeing you the next time you get out here. For our listeners, thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Sea Control is produced by Keegan Ingersoll. <laughs>